Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Social Innovation Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Paul Ark, an advisor at Gobi Partners. Paul, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. Just for the people that may not know you, and I don't think there are a lot of them, can you give us a little bit of your background for context? Sure. No, uh, you know, I think that could take an entire podcast. Let's do it. I think... um, you know, I'm I'm all I'm all over the place. Uh, yeah. So for for those that may not know who I am, I'm Thai American. You know, I, I always start off with that because uh, you know people can never quite figure out what Paul Ark is, where it comes from. You know, Paul Ark is short for Paula Putt Ark Rapidi. So right. I am Thai. Uh, I'm also you know I'm Thai Chinese, as as many Thais uh, tend to be. And so I was uh, I was a U.S. born Thai Chinese. So born in the U.S., studied there like most Americans, monolingual. I'm just horribly monolingual, even after a quarter century in Asia. I still can't, you know, grasp Asian languages. Uh, and um, yeah, so I, I, I did that whole run. And I think early on in my career, I, I moved uh, to Asia and kind of never really looked back. So kind of did um, stints all over uh, the place, as well as back in the US, you know, spent time in Europe. Um, you know, strangely enough, even a little bit of time in Africa, you know, I've just been all over the place. From a background perspective, I would probably say the first half of my career was was fairly conventional, uh, and then it just started moving. You know, somewhere along the line, it started moving sideways uh, in, in the most pleasant ways. But you know, I, I started out my career as an investment banker, uh, okay. doing um, what investment bankers do. Uh, you know, a lot of mergers and acquisitions, a lot of uh, capital markets. You know, it sounds sexy if you're an investment banker. It's boring as hell if you're not. Exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I honestly feel that investment bankers have a very high estimation of themselves. I know that I did when I was in the industry. Uh, now that I'm on the outside, you just kind of shake your head and I'm like, okay, whatever. And then interestingly enough, I would probably, you know, I made this really weird horizontal move uh, into this, this weird lateral move into retail. Um, so I, I actually joined a retailer. Uh, so for those that know Central Group, uh, you know, they're the largest multi-format retailer uh, in Thailand and one of the largest in Southeast Asia. You know, everything from department stores, shopping malls, uh, supermarkets, you know, everything. And I, I joined them in sort of a bit of an M&A capacity or international investment capacity. So I was kind of doing the investment banking thing, but for a retail company. And somewhere along the line, they they kind of just sent me off to China to open up uh, stores for them. So, which, which was kind of an interesting move because I, you know, at the time I, you know, when I joined Central, I didn't know anything about retail. And the, the year and a half later, when they asked me to go to China, I didn't know anything about China and I didn't know anything about real estate. So it was, it was a wonderful experience drinking from that fire hose. Yeah. Just learning, you know, everything about retail, learning about real estate, um, throwing myself immersively in, in the Chinese market. Uh, and then I did that for a while, um, worked for brands like Central, did the same for Apple, did the same for Microsoft. And then again, I just did this weird lateral move uh, into tech uh, and started, um, you know, an ongoing career now in tech investment, uh, starting with, you know, a stint as an angel investor. And I still invest myself, but uh, really kind of moving into venture capital, which Happened about five, six years ago, uh, and I've kind of been there ever since. I want to get to the venture capital stuff in a second, but I want to make sure that I understand you opened stores for the central group in 
China, and then you said you did the same thing yep. for Apple. So were you opening stores for Apple in China? And if you were, what was that like? Genuinely curious. Oh, that I, it, no, it, it was it was fascinating. You know, I, again, um, you know, the whole idea of opening retail stores. Uh, you know, it's you, you could you could you know I know a lot of retailers that just sort of you know plop down real estate you know willy nilly, and I I've, I've know retailers that are just incredibly strategic uh, and incredibly thoughtful and very methodical and analytical about how they do that. You know, I was actually very fortunate to start my career uh, with a company like um, Central that was just, they have a whole science to determining locations and developing stores. And it, it really served me well because, you know, I think the folks at Apple take things to the next level. Um, you know, they, they, they always take things to 11. So for, for any, uh, so spinal tap any fans, fans out there, spinal tap out there, you know, yeah, that's, that's what they do. Everything goes to 11. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I learned a phenomenal amount about, you know, I, I would probably say the Apple experience probably gave me the earliest groundings in understanding customer journey. You know, when, when, you know, in the tech space, they always talk about, you know, customer journey and user experience. And I, I'll say that no company does it better than a company like Apple. You know, they, they've mastered uh, that whole customer journey, everything from like how people use a product to unboxing a product. And that sort of extends itself to how people interact with stores. And, and so, I, you know, I'll, I'll say working for, uh, you know, it was an interesting period because when I when I joined Apple, right. uh, you know, Steve was still alive. Um, I didn't know Steve personally, but everyone at Apple calls him Steve. It's every, it's a first name basis, uh, even even if you haven't met him, because right. uh, you know, they Steve, know like, Steve was still, last name unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, yeah any in a, any other Steve in Apple has to be qualified by a last name. Exactly. If it's just Steve, everyone knows uh, you know who we're talking about. Um, but you know, Steve was still alive. Uh, Ron Johnson was still head of retail. Apple was still smaller than Microsoft. Yeah, and a lot of these tech companies. What it's, year was that? It's strange today. Uh, you know, I joined in two thousand eight. Oh wow! So literally, so, like just after the iPhone, just before this massive amount of growth. No. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's uh, you know, it's you know, the, the the iPhone had been out a little while. Two thousand seven. Um, yeah, something. Yeah, you know, and uh, the stores. The stores, there, there were a number of international stores in, in places like Japan and um, the UK, and they were starting to go beyond just a few core markets. And, and China was just one of those markets that Steve said, you know, I, I want to go big. And, you know, for, for, you know, it's like they say, go big or go home. There's no going home for Apple. It's like, no. it's just go big, period. Yeah. And yeah, so it was, it was a time when Apple was still kind of that very hungry underdog you know, the brand name was incredibly strong in China. Uh, the retail industry was uh, a gladiator pit in China. Like every international brand was trying to go in. Right. So for me to be in the deep end of that, it, it was just exciting as hell. Wow. It's, you know, you're, you're crisscrossing the country. You're competing with some of the best brands on the planet. Um, you're fighting for, you know, the best real estate. You know, you're you're tussling with landlords and government officials, and it was just it was brilliant. Was there any like formal training for you at all at Apple? Do you know what I mean? Is there like a, you know, look, look I worked at Morgan Stanley, I worked at Goldman Sachs, and there was no training, none. 
even at the beginning, I was in a training program in Morgan Stanley. There was nothing really. You just kind of got thrown into the deep end and said, figure it out. But I have to presume it, you it went to really. No, no, no. I mean, well, you know, the thing is, you know, retail real estate, I mean, you know, there's not like a really good uh, training program for retail real estate. It, it's an, you get into the business. It's an apprenticeship. Um, Fair enough. You know, it, it's not like, uh, you know, you, you, if you go to business school, you might find majors in, you know, real estate, real finance, estate or, finance, but yeah. but development, there's not like not uh, really. a master's program in building stuff. Yeah, not really. Uh, and certainly and certainly not. And I'll, I'll tell you the truth. Even super experienced retail real estate professionals still had a hard time um, understanding the way Apple did business. Really? Simply because Apple did business in a very Apple-y way. You know, um, you know, a- Apple turned everything on its head, you know, in everything they did, right? You know, it's, you know when, they, when they did smartphones, they said, you know, we're, we're not going to do uh, we're, we're not going to do these feature phones that, you know, um, Verizon or AT&T is going to load with a lot of bloatware. Right. Apple just said, this is our way. It's our way or highway. And when they did retail, same thing. And when we dealt with, you know, landlords and government officials, I mean, you know, we, we were really good at finessing and negotiating, but we just had a very unique approach to the business that I think confounded a lot of people. Uh, but over time, when people see how just wildly successful the stores get, right. people just scratch their heads and say, okay, Apple wants what it wants. If we are a partner, then we go along for the ride. And so it, it, it you know, it, it was, a, again, it, it all, it all was a very unique experience. When I went to the Apple store for the first time in Ginza, it was a mob scene. And this is, I think it's pre iPhone, but I don't remember that for a fact, actually. But I used to go there on the weekends when I had nothing else to do just to hang out. I want to talk about the simplicity of the store where every product was meant to be on display, which was a new thing. That was radical when Apple did it. But I believe to create simplicity, you have to have a lot of complexity behind it. Is that fair? Oh, absolutely. 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 You know, it's, it's not easy making something that simple. Right. And, you know, it, it's an interesting lesson because, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of time you know, I, I've done a lot of these weird little side gigs where I'll either go in and teach classes at a university or I'll do these webinars. And, you know, to, to be able to take a very complex topic and I don't want to say dumb it down or water things down, but to kind of translate something very complex into something that's easily comprehensible is incredibly hard. I call it distilling. Yeah, yeah, that that that's it. You know, if you distill it well, um, again, you know, it's it's uh, you know uh, that's actually a really great word because yeah. you know anyone that's you know understands distillation. Whiskey, yeah, if you if you distill it well, it goes down quite smoothly, and if it doesn't, it's it, horrible. You know, kind of rips the throat raw. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, and so that's the same thing. And I think we've all used really really horrible smartphones with really bad uh, user interfaces and. You know, and again, it, it, it applies to many things in life, tech and non-tech. Yeah, but, agreed. But, you know, to make an experience smooth, simple, you know, and again, simple doesn't equal simplistic. No. Simple is, uh, you know, it's it's just smooth, intuitive, it flows, uh, and that's super, super hard. And I, I would say that Apple experience, you know, the, the one thing um, that you touched on is that, 
you know, the stores weren't just a phenomenal showcase for products. No. The stores were a product. Yeah. The stores were treated as if they were a product in and of themselves. Yep. Uh, and the the whole idea, and and I think the the way you said it was exactly what we tried to accomplish is, you know, you just want to go there and hang out, and that's what people in Apple want. That's how they want customers to engage with the store, whether you buy or not. They want you to hang out because if you are hanging out uh, and you're engaged with the product and you're engaged with the environment in the store, then when people look into those big glass stores and they see people. Uh, it just looks good. They, they want to go in. Crowd. Yeah, they want to go in. I used to joke. So I once met the head of Apple retail in Japan as they were opening that store. As a matter of fact, I might have been at the opening. He was standing outside with his Japanese assistant and he just pulled me over. Or I might have walked over to him and just said, you know, how's it going? How's the opening? All this other kind of stuff. And it was just a great discussion. And I used to joke and I joked with him. Because the store was in Ginza. It depends, about, depends on how much you know about Japan and about Ginza itself or about Tokyo. I said to him, you should put a bar in here and people will just never leave. I mean, it was a joke, right? I didn't expect him to serve alcohol there. But that was the excitement and the environment inside that store. That's actually, you know, quite an amazing store. You know, I, I point out to people, you know, the, the you know, what Apple's able to do um, with landlords and with with governments because you know i tell people if you go to ginza um you go in and i say the first you know you you may not notice but take a look there are no structural columns in that floor space at all and because apple has a very very horrendous allergy to like columns we don't like to see you know we want this open space and so you can imagine going to a landlord and going to a local government and saying we're going to knock down all these columns in a country that is deathly paranoid about earthquakes, earthquakes. Yep. and we said we're going to knock down all the columns but we're going to do this is how we're going to do the structural engineering to support you know these walls and the structure and to be able to go in and convince them of that is not just you know beautiful product and aesthetic it's some phenomenal engineering that goes into a store like that yeah. which is the same engineering that goes into any of the product yeah so for me you know it's you know i don't, I don't want to make this whole podcast about apple but it did teach me a lot about things like user experience and design how products are designed how to be able to to kind of convince people around a particular vision of product quality product design product aesthetic I wanted to talk about Apple because of all the things you can learn there, but also the transferability into, if you care about the user journey, if you care about the user experience, if you care about the details, if you care about distilling complexity into simplicity, I think it plays really well into both sides actually of a growing, developing and dynamic startup ecosystem. Because mm. those skills and those skills, those analyzing skills or analysis skills come in super handy. In other words, when someone's pitching to you, and we'll get to this transition into VC in a second, if they can't distill the complexity of their product into a simple thing to explain it to you or to their users, well, then they're just going to fail no matter how great the thing is. So I think that there are mm. equivalencies, and I like to make those analogies so that people that are familiar with Apple can then understand how it translates to something with which they may not be so familiar. Well, you know, if I can comment, you know, and I think you, you hit upon the head an incredibly important 
point uh, in my career because, like I said, you know, I, I've had all these weird career pivots, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, you know, I think from the outside, uh, you know, you, you keep changing careers, it would look like it's just, you know, a reset. Right. You move into a different business, you know, there's no, you know, um, you know, there's no reason why I wouldn't have to start at square one. And and really what it is, is, you know, these, these kind of stepwise lateral moves, you know, because, you know, it, it, coming off of Apple, uh, if I framed my entire career as I am a China retail real estate guy, right? It means that, you know, um, if I'm not looking to open up stores for, you know, Samsung or, you know, Tom shoes or, you know, Ralph Lauren, then, you know, where does my career go? But if I kind of twist everything on the head, it's like, it's not industry based, it's skill based. Exactly. You know, I, I'm here to, I'm here to get uh, brands or companies into new markets. Uh, I'm here to structure complex deals. I am here to build consensus from a variety of stakeholders around a certain objective. All of a sudden, that starts to look like the type of job that either an entrepreneur or a VC would do. Exactly. Um, so for me, a lot of that, you know, I, I went through that transition a few times where, you know, I tell people I'm not an investment banker, or at least I don't view myself as an investment banker. I don't view myself as a retailer. I'm, I'm not who my title is. Right. Uh, who I am is what my skill set does. Which is the These point. Are that my skill Which is the point that I was trying to make, and I would make the case as well that. The investment banking job to start is like building the sort of low level infrastructure of understanding just how business and deals get done, which is completely transferable to everything else you did, whether it's evaluation, yeah, you know, studying yeah. analytics, metrics, All valuation, as you're about to say. Yeah, I mean, it's and again, th those are skills that that serve people in any industry um, without you know, I mean, and th those are exactly the skills that um, brought me into the retail business when Central exactly. uh, approached me. It's like, you know, we don't we don't care that you whatever, you know, because I was a telecom guy when I was right. an investment banker. Right. Uh, but they, they weren't concerned about the telecom so much as the you could do deals, you know how to do due diligence. Right. Um, and, you know, you're perfectly okay to travel like a fiend that uh, that was actually kind of a big piece of it uh, for Apple as well. You know, right. they just want someone who's got stamina to travel. <laughs> I, I always loved the traveling part of my job. It's something that I miss a lot now, actually. I'm envious of you, actually, because you're, you've been traveling in the United States. I haven't been on a plane in two years, but let's, we can talk about that later. I want to understand the transition into the VC world and also understand what it was like building that business from scratch and building the team from scratch. Like, what are some of the things that you learned from doing that? Yeah, no, it, it, you know, and th that was an interesting transition for me because, you know, the one thing I should be very clear about my career is that, um, you know, with throughout all these career pivots, you know, I don't go into these the, these weird pivots with a plan in mind. It's not like, okay, I came out of retail, I'm going to go into VC. Um, you know, stuff just happens to me. Uh, you know, for, for anyone who's old enough to remember, like, you know, the movie Forrest Gump, that is literally me. It's like I just go through life and stuff happens to me. Uh, and I am the victim of exceptionally good luck. I, I don't you know, I you know, when when I was approached 
to, to run this VC fund. So my, you know, for, for those that um, may be familiar, my, my previous company in my first foray into VC was to run the corporate VC fund for Siam Commercial Bank. SCB. Uh, and, and it was quite interesting because by the time up until that point, uh, you know, I, I, I've been immersing myself in the startup ecosystems, both uh, in China as well as Southeast Asia, largely Thailand, uh, mostly as a either angel investor or as a startup mentor or helping organize events and hackathons, but, you know, no prior experience in VC. And so when I was called in by uh, the gentleman that was launching Digital Ventures, uh, the digital ventures unit for Siam Commercial Bank. You know, I, I I just got in this random note that said, you know, from his secretary that said, you know, um, Mr. So and So would like to talk to you. Uh, and my wife knew the name and said, oh, you know, he's he's really well known in the business space in Thailand. You should totally meet him. Uh, so I went to go meet him, and he was sort of talking about, you know, what digital ventures and what was trying to be and what Siam Commercial Bank wanted to accomplish. And he was just telling me about, he was just giving me the pitch for 15 minutes. And the entire time, I didn't realize it was a job interview. I, I thought, I actually suspected that maybe he wanted uh, mentors for their accelerator because they were going to put together an accelerator. And, you know, I'd been doing a lot of startup mentoring. So I just thought, okay, hey, you know, would you, you know, we're trying to build a, a stable of mentors for startups. Would you like to be one? Right, right, right. And, and so he, he calls me in 15 minutes to tell me a division. Uh, and after about 15 minutes, I said, okay, this is kind of what I'm doing or what I have been doing. And I literally asked the guy, so how how would you like to collaborate with one another? Right. How can I help you? And he just flat out says, we'd like you to run the venture capital fund. <laughs> and like... I'm sitting there nonplussed for a few seconds. <laughs> and um, I, I, I said, you know, I, I've never... I've never run. I'm not a VC. I've never done VC, much less have run a venture capital fund. And, you know, he's like, but, you know, you, you, you've done international investments as a banker, as an angel investor. I said, oh, it's not the same thing. Right. You know that. And he's like, we know. And, I, you know, I, I said, I don't really know anything about fintech either. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm as aware of fintech as sort of your relatively tech savvy layperson. Right. You know, I, I'm, I'm around the ecosystem. I probably know about as much fintech as anyone else. And he, he asks me, you know, what do you know about blockchain? And I said, I read two books. This is back in 2016 when it was just starting to come on Thai people's radar. Right, right. I said, I read two books. And he said, that's two books more than anyone in the bank has read. So say. you know way more about blockchain than anyone else. I was going to say. Uh, and, and then, you know, he kind of told me, you know, what the platform was about. And so I, you know, I just sat there and said, sure, I'm not really doing anything at the moment. Why not? <laughs> you, know, you know, yeah, sure. Just get, you know, give the guy that's never done VC, you know, uh, a blank check, 50 million bucks, carte blanche to recruit people and just go. Uh, and and it, was, it was quite, it was quite interesting because same thing. It's like, I, I'd asked him, you know, what's, what's the investment thesis and strategy? You know, I, I said other than fintech, which you know it's a bank. Yep. Uh, he said, you know, it's it's your job to actually come up with an investment thesis and strategy. Uh, and I said, what's the team like? And he said, no team. You know, here's you know you have a headcount for X number of people. Yep. You know, you, you build the team. I said, what's the investment process like? It's like we want you to build that too. Uh, and then I said, you know what, you know what are my KPIs? And he said, well, we're hoping you'll tell us what they should be. And I'm thinking, okay, this is kind of is this really the way this works. 
it's a blank you know that's like this can't be the way it works I, you know it's it's like this is the easiest you know uh, entry into vc no i mean it was great you know but you know i think what was really fascinating for me was that um you know it wasn't like okay uh we want you to come in and just max out return on investment just do a ton of deals and just make us a ton of money scb was at the very beginning of what is probably still an ongoing transformational journey yep um, you know, they, they they want to, you know, they understand that fundamentally the nature of banking needs to change. There needs to be this 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 innovative element involved. Uh, and, and so for me, the idea of saying, OK, I'm not just coming in to max out return on investment. I'm not just trying to get to, you know, this 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 metric. Uh, but I am here to actually kind of build a platform, um, kind of set at least the initial direction of how uh, this bank's VC operation might work. Uh, and I get to hire the types of people I want to work with. So that for me was was the attraction for this. For sure. You know, it was, you know, it was uh, helping build an industry from the ground up. Because at the time, there were probably only a handful of local VCs. You know, that there were a few folks at Art and Capital at the time. Uh, there were, uh, you know, there was, I, I think at the time that that was when 500 Duk Duk's only had you know, two people. Yeah, there was, you know, AIS, they had a handful of people, but you know, there weren't that many local VCs. It wasn't that sophisticated so, back then. And and I'll tell yeah, you, it was as, still very new. As a limited partner in Ardent Capital, even that business moved from an investment business to sort of a venture building business into essentially a commerce relatively quickly. Hmm. Yeah. No, but it just meant that it was a wide open field to kind of put a stamp on an industry the way, you know, I wanted to do. And it's not like I was going to just do it, you know, um, sure. out of, you know, nothing, you know, but I would have the opportunity to kind of uh, travel the world, you know, interact with some of the, the most amazing venture capitalists around the world and then start, you know, saying, OK, how do we build a venture capital scheme? that draws upon, you know, the best VCs uh, in the US and Europe and Israel and across Asia. Yeah. Uh, so that, that was a big appeal for me. Um, also, uh, probably another really important piece for me, and, and this is still kind of one of the enduring missions for me, was, uh, you know, it was an opportunity, you know, I think when I came in, the ecosystem had been around for you know, maybe about, you know, four or five, six, seven years, you know, probably most, about yep. four or five years. Yep. Uh, VC was quite new. Um, and for me, I've always been very sensitive to diversity in, in these types of industries. So to come in and say, okay, this is an industry that's still largely male dominated. Yep. And I have the option to build the kind of team I want. Again, at the time, there was no, there was no homegrown VC there wasn't a pool of VC professionals to draw from. Right. You couldn't poach people. You know, right? from... and, 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 yeah. You know, unless the bank is going to give me a phenomenal hiring budget and I draw people from overseas, right. you know, I'm going to be hiring Thai people uh, paying salaries kind of within the salary band that a bank uh, could stomach. So not bad, but not like, you know, astounding. Uh, but it, it's going to be the opportunity for people who are interested in tech, who are intrigued by VC to kind of come in without having prior experience because no one had it. Right. I didn't even have it. Probably the most important initial step that I took uh, is to make sure that half of the team that I brought on board were, were women. 
Um, so, you know, I had a head count of four, you know, two principals, two associates. Uh, and so I wanted a male and female at both levels. And I, you know, I wanted to use the digital ventures platform to, you know, create that training ground for women in VC. From, for somebody who was outside and watching the building of that business, it was very clear the focus on gender balance and diversity from the beginning, particularly early on when you would introduce the new people that came into the business. But it was also obvious that there was, that it was in your mind, even without explicitly saying it, that this was a training operation as well. That if we're going to create the next generation of great venture capital investors in Thailand, first of all, they have to be Thai. And second of all, they have, to, they have to have a platform where they can learn all these new things. And I think part of that was the implementation of your book club, which may have seemed a little bit whimsical to some, but it seemed purposeful to me. Is that fair? No, I, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's something I've always been very proud of. Um, it, it's actually something that uh, you know, we, we, we tried to kick off with our team at Gobi Partners, at least in Thailand. Uh, and then it just kind of all went sideways when we weren't able to kind of come together, together right? you know, every month. Because, uh, you know, it, it does rely on, you know, sort of uh, people coming together. Yep. And so the, I, you know, I think you're absolutely right when you said purposeful, because there, there was a purpose behind that. The, the one thing that I loved about the members of my team is that uh, the types of people I hire are very, very self-motivated. You know, you, you sit there and say, you know, hey, I'm going to put you on a deal about lending. Uh, and that person will immerse themselves and become an expert on lending. Right. Or, you know, um, you know, hey, I, I want you to do something in blockchain. And they will immerse themselves in, in blockchain. Uh, you know, actually, you know, a, a pretty interesting story. I mean, you know, you're one of your collaborators, Nat you know, uh, on the fintech side, you know, she, she was one of my interns and her first taste of blockchain was, I need you to do some research for me on this blockchain project. She's and brilliant. she's like, no idea. And it, it's gotten to the point where she, you know, fast forward a few years later, she knows a thousand times more about blockchain and crypto than I'll be able to absorb in my lifetime. Sure. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's just amazing how people on this team, you know, you give them yeah. something and you know they latch on like a pit bull but what's quite interesting is a lot of them and this is probably true of any really super talented hyper focused thai person is that you know they tend to be so hyper focused on that to the exclusion of almost everything else and it, you know it, and it, so what, what start you know the, the genesis of this book club is when one of uh one of my associates and now she's like you know one of the she's one of the principals uh, at SCB10X now, one of the, you know, honestly, my personal opinion, one of the top VCs in the market now. But there was this moment where we were looking at a, a particular startup or a business model. And uh, during our group discussions, I started throwing out points uh, and some insights just purely out of left field that sort of shed light on, oh, hadn't thought about that before. That's quite an interesting point. And she comes up to me later and she's just like, you know, that that line of thinking, that 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 sort of new viewpoint, that lateral thinking, she's just like, you know, I, I never would have thought of that. You know, is that like, how, how do you do that? Because you do that a lot. You just come in from this really weird angle that most people wouldn't have thought of. And I said, it's not it's not an inherent skill. 
Right. I wasn't born with this really, you know, different views. It's it's just I said I, I read a lot. You know, I, I read and I don't read about just one topic. I read everything. I read philosophy. I read, you know, politics. I read history. I read a ton of comic books. I don't care. I will, you know, I will read a cereal box over breakfast if I can. Right. And, you know, I said, if you do that enough times, you start to connect dots between different things. You know, what starts off as a random series of readings actually start to make sense in this weird sort of web kind of way. Uh, and so I, I, I asked her, you know, outside of work, because I know that, you know, when you read something for your job, you'll get super deep into it. But I said, outside of work, how many books do you read a year? Right. And what really shocked me is she's like, maybe one. And I'm like, one, like for pleasure, for anything. She's like, no, just maybe one. Surveyed about half the members of my team, super smart people, one or two. Yeah. Um, we did have some people that read voraciously, but quite a few that didn't. And so, you know, I, I said, you know, look, this is what we're going to do. You know, we're going to start a book club. I'm not going to, it's not going to be part of your review. But just so you know, um, this is not out of Digital Ventures budget. I am going to pay for these things out of pocket. And, you know, Thai people, they get very what's called grand jai. You know, they feel guilty. You give them something and they kind of, you know, you kind of squander the gift. So it's like they know that I was spending like, you know, upwards of like a thousand baht a month on books or more, probably a few thousand baht books. But, you know, so when you sit there and say, I bought the books out of my own pocket right. because I am doing this as a gift to enhance your thinking, it's a personal development. I think, you know, I kind of guilt trip them into reading the book. <laughs> and then I said, you know, at the end of the month, I'm going to give everyone one month and we're going to come together and we're going to, we're going to go to some rooftop bar and I'm going to pay for drinks you know, everyone's going to chip in for bar snacks, but I'll, I'll pay for at least the first round of drinks. And the thing is, it's, it's real work. It is. I, you know, I, 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 I build very, very thoughtful questions that I want them to ask very thought provoking questions that tie the book back to their work, not just to their day to day, but to their work. And then every successive book we read, no matter how random it is, or now, no matter how disconnected it was from the previous book, I'll find a way to connect it back to either their work or something that we've read previously. Uh, and I think it just started to build, you know, like I said, those sort of intangible connections where people start saying, ah, okay, I'm starting to recognize these weird patterns. Right. And it got to the point where I think a lot of them felt like it was a real chore for the first couple of months. For sure. But by the time we hit kind of our second year, um, a lot of the team members are picking up books on their own. Yeah. You know, they're reading a lot more. They're starting to pick up really weird insights and certain things. And for me, I walked away and I said, mission accomplished. You know, if, if just a handful of them read on a regular basis, I will have done my job. That type of reading and that type of knowledge accumulation to me almost seems like, a f and I think there's a direct equivalency actually to a physical workout. It's the hardest time to start working out and getting in shape is when you're really out of shape because the obvious impact well, the impact it initially is not obvious at all. So after you read your first book, you're like, this is drudgery. I don't get anything out of this, and I don't feel as smart as I thought I would when I'm done. But it's the fourth book or the fifth book, which is like the fourth month or the fifth month of, you know, walking 45 minutes a day, and you're like, I just lost five kilos. Now I'm really into working out. Give me more books, right? You're absolutely right, and that's a perfect analogy. That said, I still can't 
drag my ass out of uh, <laughs> my chair, my bed to work on. And I know you're absolutely right. Cause I think it's like, if I can get past the first week, I'll, I'll probably start getting into shape. I just can't get there myself. So I'd rather just read a book. But you understand the point though, right? I mean, I was just trying to make a point. Oh, absolutely. I've been there. I've been there. I, you know, believe it or not, there was a time when I actually used to do half marathons regularly. Same here. Um, now it's just, uh, yeah, not happening. Talk to me about the transition from, what I'll call sort of traditional sort of not only fintech, but traditional venture capital investing into what do you want to call it? ESG impact investing, social innovation. How did that transition take place? You know, that's, that's a great question. You know, and sometimes I, I kind of look back and kind of marvel at how that happened. Cause again, you know, it follows this weird pattern where, you know, I work for a few years, I'll come out of a job. Um, and then I'll just go through this weird period of, of self-reflection and I'll come out the other side with like just some different job. And so, you know, it, it, it was a very similar pattern in the sense that, you know, I, I left Digital Ventures after about four years, uh, which seems to be a bit of a pattern, you know, that I can't seem to shake. Like I'll get into something for four years and after about four years, it's like, I feel like I've done everything I can. Right. And so either it's time for me to get out or the company says get out anyways. Uh, but it always seems to be this, you know, um, it always seems to work out. So, you know, I, I came out of uh, Digital Ventures in January of 2020. So right before the world went to hell. You know, so I, I think at that point, um, and I've done these extended sabbaticals for a while. I'll, I'll come out of a job, not know what I want to do next. And I say, I'm just not going to work for the foreseeable future. And so that's what happened. I said, you know, I'm probably, I'm going to deflect every job offer until maybe the end of, you know, um, 2021 or sometime in 2022, you know, I'm going to take like a two year break, which seems crazy, but I think, you know, the gap between my time at Apple, uh, and the time at digital ventures, I, I didn't do a full-time job of four years. You know, I did some part-time consulting, but I, I didn't work, you know, a regular nine to five. For you. So it's like, I was just going to do the same for two years. Uh, and I just took the opportunity to say, you know what, I, I want to kind of, one, I want to kind of get back into some of the philanthropic work that I did, you know, before I got sucked into VC. I am a co-founder in an educational foundation that does a lot of work in Africa. Um, so kind of wanted to get back to that uh, in some way, shape or form. What's that called? It's, it's called the Amazing Maasai Girls Project. Uh, and I could literally talk for an hour on this, but in a nutshell, uh, we are a U.S.-based 501c3 nonprofit, uh, and our mission is to uh, educate girls uh, in these Maasai tribes in Kenya. So, you know, if, if you've ever seen sort of like these Maasai warriors, very colorful outfits, um, just very, uh, just very fascinating um, people, um, but very, very economically poor um they're you know they're they're, they're they're tribes folks they're very pastoral and so these are communities that generally can't afford to educate their children or if they do they can generally educate maybe one and it's typically the boys right and so what winds up happening is that a lot of times they marry off the girls and they'll do it quite young you know they'll marry off these girls but like young, young. 13 14 yeah. yeah like child brides yeah they're, they're child brides um and again it's not out of any sense of cultural tradition it's just economic you know, uh, you, you know, you marry off a girl, you receive some sort of a bride price in the form of livestock, goats or cattle, uh, and that will sustain the rest of the family, you know, because you might have, you know, four or five, six children 
uh, mouths to feed. So they do it out of economic necessity. But unfortunately, these girls get married 13, 14, their education stops. They have children at 14, 15, and it's just a cycle of poverty. Uh, and so, you know, what we, we hope to do is we raise scholarship money to send these girls to school, just puts them on a different economic trajectory. Yeah. And uh, in the 10 years that we've operated the nonprofit, uh, you know, we've raised over $600,000 in scholarship funds. Uh, we, you know, about a year or two ago, we set up a second fund to actually assist with uh, tuition assistance at the university level. Uh, we've had, uh, we've awarded scholarships to over a hundred girls. Wow. Uh, some of the earliest graduates that have come out of high school have gone on to university. Uh, we have one that's about to start our master's program in Africa. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, you know, just again, uh, women's empowerment, girls' education, those, those are always two very big things that are, are quite important to me. So, you know, coming out of uh, a VC job uh, gave me a little bit of time to reconnect with my, you know, my nonprofit. Um, it also kind of led me down this path to say, you know, I'm going to take a lot of online classes. I, I've always enjoyed, you know, taking these online courses either through platforms like Coursera or FutureLearn in the UK. Well, you know, especially now that a lot of these programs have kind of these all-you-can-eat subscriptions. You pay a few hundred bucks, you know, a year, and you just take all the classes that you have time for. And so when you're not working and you're staying at home, you know, I just spend a lot of time, you know, taking classes and it's just everything from I'm going to learn about the cannabis industry. You know, again, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that came out, uh, you know, uh, you know, sort of the early sparks of a cannabis industry in Thailand, taking stuff on cybersecurity. Um, I started taking a lot of classes on sustainability and just and I think the deeper I, I, I went down that sustainability rabbit hole, you know, I just started eating it all up. You know, I wanted to learn about climate. I wanted to learn about racial injustice. I wanted to learn about gender inequality. I wanted to learn about economic development. I wanted to learn about, you know, um, you know, corruption and governance. Uh, and a lot of it sort of tied into both the work I've done as a VC and a lot of the work that I did as a philanthropist. And so I, I just kept going and kept going, kept going um, with no particular professional agenda in mind. I'm just going to do this because it is fascinating and this is important to know. And in, in no small way, a lot of it was just because, um, you know, my, my, my wife, uh, her brother, uh, had a son a few years ago. Um, so her, you know, it was the first, uh, it, it was like her first nephew on her yep. side of the family. She abs, we, we absolutely fell in love with this kid. And, you know, we don't have children of our own. So, you know, we kind of, uh, you know, we, you know, we, we kind of just sort of, um, you know, experience all of our parental instincts for this kid. Yeah. You just emotionally. Adapt and we him, started right? asking ourselves. Yeah. You know, but, you know, in, in a good way, in yeah. the sense that as soon as he gets unruly or difficult, it's like, bye, we're going home. <laughs> you know, we'll see you next weekend. Other people's children. So it's, it's all the, it, yeah, it's all other people's children. And it's, it's the best part about you know, unclehood and, and aunthood. Exactly. Uh, all the all the wonderful parts about parenthood without all the yucky stuff like, you know, diapers and, you know, kids barfing all over the time or tantrums. But, you know, but we, we did spend a lot of time saying, you know, what kind of world is he going to grow up in 20 years down the line? Right. 15, you know, when, when he comes out of school. 
And so we, we started thinking about things like the future of education, the future of work. Um, we started thinking about what kind of environment he's going to come into. So it's it it, it really started to it became a bit of a convergence between everything we were doing as VCs and then everything that is going to impact, you know, tech, you know, whether it's the environment or racial inequality or gender inequality or governance or economic development. Right. So, you know, it, it's, I, you know, I just got sucked in deeper and deeper and deeper. And after about six, seven, eight months of just intensive study, you know, I got a I got a call from a good friend of mine, Shannon Kalyanamit, who had made the transition from entrepreneurship uh, into the VC space. You know, she and I, you know, we we met. I want to say almost twenty years ago. Yeah. You know, uh, back when, and and Shannon and I had met doing a lot of philanthropic work. So that was actually our connection. Uh, and then we just knew each other through our tech phases. As you know, she was coming up as an entrepreneur. I was coming up as a VC um, and then her transition to VC. And so she, she, um, she'd been at Gobi for a couple of years and she reached out and said, you know, Gobi's getting really, really serious about ESG yeah. and sustainability and impact. Um, but you know they you know Gobi's in that transitional phase. You know they're very interested, but there's not a lot of in-house expertise. And would you be interested in working with us on a couple of projects? And so you know I said, yeah, no. I mean you know again I'm not you know I I'm still trying to decide whether I want to get back into the quote-unquote VC game myself. Right. You know so I'm I'm still sort of looking at startups but haven't been actively deploying capital um, as a VC. I'm probably more interested in, you know, how do we implement uh, these types of frameworks and these types of thinkings? How do we, how do we bring uh, the types of risk management frameworks that come with ESG into a traditional VC space? Yeah. Um, how do we work with startups to, so that they are becoming more sustainability minded? How do we look for sources of value in this? Because obviously, you know, you don't want companies to do it. You know, again, at the end of the day, VCs are still very return driven. Yep. So is this going to be a burden or a cost or is this an investment that will create value down the line? And so a lot of my work uh, and research has been around justifying that these are very, very important things that will ultimately pay off. How do you look at these investments differently now that you're looking at th looking at them through sort of an ESG for shorthand through an ESG lens? Does it change the way you analyze this stuff? Does it lengthen the time frame? Like, what's the different framework that you're looking at? Well, you know, it, again, you're 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 looking at it with a different set of criteria around risks, as well as opportunity. So again, you know, I, I you know I, I see this the whole idea from this binary of kind of defense offense. So, you know, and, and so if it helps, you know, I, I bring, you know, Asian people into the world of football or soccer, as some of us Americans will call it, you know, you, you play, it's important to play both a defensive game and an offensive game. Okay. You know, or, or sports, basketball, football, baseball, you know, you, you got to be strong in both. When people ask me, okay, what is ESG? What is sustainability? You know, these are, you know, it's an alphabet soup. It's, you know, this whole vocabulary. And so in a very, very simple, simple way, 
Um, and maybe I don't want to be over simplistic. I want to be simple, but not simplistic. I, I tell people that ESG is um, it's more defensive. You know, it's a risk management tool. It's do less bad. Yeah. So, okay, okay let's make sure that, you know, um, our vendors and our supply chain are not employing forced labor or child labor. Uh, let's make sure that anything that we deal with, especially if it's physical or extractive, like, say, agritech or some sort of materials-based business, that we're not displacing indigenous people. Um, let's make sure that we're not actively discriminating against women in the workplace. Right. Uh, you know, all, all these sort of factors. It's like this. It's almost a checklist of let's just make sure that we're not doing bad stuff. Because you'd be surprised. You know, there are times when people are like, oh, gosh, yeah, we, we don't have a policy in place. You know, what happens if a senior vice president in the company sexually harasses, you know, a young intern? Is there a procedure in place to right. mitigate that? Right. Most startups probably don't even think about those. No, things. they don't. And so by the time they do think about it, it's probably they're far enough along where that's where, the, you know, those problems could arise. So, you know, ESG is more that it's defense. It's like, let's just make sure that bad stuff doesn't happen to us. You know, once you cover the defensive side, then you probably have the ability to say, you know, can we actually look at things like environmental footprint, uh, gender equality, racial equality to actually create value? So, for example, if we invest in women, if we invest in female founders, can we actually create value? Sure. Um, and, and yeah, well, sure. And that's, well, I mean, you and I will say sure, but you know, you'd still be surprised that there are a lot of people in the tech industry that are like, oh, you know, what's the value in investing in women? What's yeah, the value it. in making sure that we're diverse? Right. Um, and so it, there are moments where we actually say, you know, hey, there is research that shows that if we have a diverse management team, both racially or you know from a gender perspective or from an international perspective right. that we will produce better results operationally financially so on right um that's that's a lot of the work that i spend time doing is it's it's very it, it's you know i i tell people on I, I spend more time as an evangelist proselytizing about you know esg and sustainability and impact to the point where hopefully uh it be, it hits a tipping point where it becomes standard operating procedure, right. then I can kind of make that transition and say, now that everyone is investing from an ESG perspective, maybe it's time for me to start actually investing again. No, but I think I think to your question, to your question, it, it does require a little bit more work because now you're saying, you know, when you do your due diligence, you're not just sitting there saying, okay, we want to look at your financials. Yep, other variables. And we want to look at your operations. You know. I think if you go back a few years ago, people, you know, VCs are saying, oh, we probably should be more rigorous on our legal due diligence. Right. And maybe we should start scrutinizing tech. So let's do our tech due diligence. So now, you know, I tell people, look, you know, um, we're just the fifth layer. You're looking at finances. You're looking at operations. You're looking at legal. You're looking at tech. Now we're looking at ESG risks. You know, if you want to do superior due diligence, then you basically add on this additional layer of scrutiny. Yeah, and I want to be clear about this. The whole point of this show is, I believe, at least what I'm trying to do, is be part of the offense so that people understand yeah. why this is really important. And the more that we can get people to tell the stories from every side, so from a 360-degree view, whether it's the founders, the financers, the people like Diginex Solutions that build the tools to measure ESG impact, all of these stories I want to get out there just like you so that when it 
like the whole idea for a whole bunch of the things that I do is to normalize things that are not normalized yet. Yeah, and that, that's a great point because it's you know I there's a there's there needs to be a strong emphasis on yet because yeah you know if you're investing in public companies in places like Europe or the U.S. then ESG is a regular part of the conversation. You know, a, a lot of these these big asset managers are increasingly allocating capital using some sort of ESG screen or filter or criteria. And, and so when, when I tell people about the increasing dissemination or influence of ESG, you know, I, I say from a geographic perspective, a lot of it started in Europe and it's become quite big in the U.S. or increasingly mainstream in the U.S. And where it's starting to become a bit frontier is now... You know, we're we're hearing more and more people talk about it in Asia. So you know, it's not as prevalent in Asia and these other uh, these other uh, regions, but it's getting there yep. and it's picking up steam. Uh, and then I say, from another axis, if we consider you know asset class, so it you know very very heavy on public companies, and you start seeing it more on the large cap private equity, large and mid cap private equity. And where it's it still hasn't quite touched yet in a big way is that early stage private company where VCs operate. So I say if you look at both of those axes, if you operate in the VC space in Asia, ESG is incredibly frontier. Right, it's it's really new into the region. It's new to the asset class, which means that, again, it, it, for me, it almost feels like being one of the early international retailers in china I was gonna say, it's like you know same this, same you know it's it's catching the wave and riding it before all the other people have basically paddled out with their boards exactly and so for me it's like okay i am at the early part of this wave seeing this transformational trend and again i you know it's not it's it's not kind of this sort of fly-by-night trend it's really going to be this transformational sea change absolutely that impacts uh, you know, companies, it's going to impact investors. And so quite exciting. Very. The last thing I want to ask you before I let you go is a little bit more whimsical. I've learned a lot, but what is it like being part of a pretty tremendous, I would say like investment or VC power couple? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really quite interesting because, you know, for, for those that don't know, um, you know, so it's, it's interesting in the sense that I came to VC quite late in my career. I had already been an investment banker. I'd been a retailer. I'd done, you know, between that, you know, I'd had over 20 years of work experience before I became a VC. Right. And I changed careers a few times. And, the, you know, it's, you know, it's one of those weird things where, you know, late 40s, never done VC, here's a hundred million bucks. That's the, you know, the bank gave me 50, then they topped it up. Right. I'm like, wow, this is a very unusual position. Yeah. Um, and my wife followed a very similar path. You know, she, she spent 20 years as a corporate banker. She, her very first career was on a sales and trading desk doing currencies and interest rate instruments. Uh, and she built an entire career kind of coming up through that uh, to the point she was, you know, a, a very senior banker at some international banks doing structured product. Uh, and so, and, and her career is quite more, it, it's it's quite, the gap is quite transformational because, you know, for me, I was doing a lot of strategic stuff. You know, a lot of my work involved getting to know markets and getting to know people and seeing how transformational some of these environments can be. You know, her, her career was largely dealing, you know, if she wasn't 
in conversations with corporate titans, CEOs and CFOs of large cap public companies, then she was spending a lot of time looking at screens, looking at, you know, price movements. And, you know, she's used to making split second decisions. And so to kind of go from, I had a meeting with the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company and probably one of the largest market cap companies at stock exchange and trading, you know, on these split second decisions to, I am talking to the 26 year old CEO of a company that, you know, has got, they've been around for three months and they probably got three months of cash flow left. And it's probably going to take me about a year to make something happen with them. It, you know, it's just, it, so it was different. just a shock to our system, but, but it's interesting because, you know, both of us had come from two very different sides of the finance industry. You know, me from M&A, her from sales and trading. You know, we can both say that we were bankers, but we had nothing in common career-wise. Right. Right. We had nothing that, you know, crossed. So we actually, most of our relationship in marriage, we never talked about work. Um, because she would talk about, you know, currency fluctuations and my eyes would glaze over. Right. Like, I don't care. And I wouldn't even talk to her about my business because everything's confidential. Right. So... <laughs> So it's, it's really, which is interesting because when people say, oh, you know, you guys had this long distance, you know, you know, the thing is, you know, our, our entire marriage was based on personal connection because we couldn't talk about work. Right. And so and then we both wind up in, you know, first I wind up in VC, but as a corporate VC, and then she winds up in VC a few years later. She kind of got sucked in because she was helping me out with things like right. organizing pitch competitions. And everyone's like, and, she's pretty know, smart. To come. And they're like, hey, she seems to know every startup now because she's basically, you know, recruiting startups to, you know, right. we, were, we, we were both organizing the pitch competitions for Seed Stars. I love it. I so love it. she was actually just doing it to help me out. And then she got recruited into VC in her own right. I'm going to say she's probably much better at it than I am because <laughs> uh, people like her. I think people tolerate me, but they love her. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but you know, it's, it's really quite amazing. So we're both VCs, but it's still like, you know, we can kind of talk to each other because, you know, she's doing a lot of Southeast Asia and I'm doing a lot of like Overseas Europe stuff. and yeah. Israel and, you know, we weren't looking at the same thing. Deals, yeah. And then I wind up at Gobi, and she's at Open Space, and now we're we're frenemies. You know, we're direct competitors, but we're also co-investors. But it's just like, you know, now you know we're, we're very careful about what we talk about. You know, we're here in Seattle at the moment in a hotel room. I'm I'm doing this podcast from a bedroom. She's out in the main living area with a door. If I open the door, she's gonna be like muting and like oh, okay. <laughs> covering her she's screen. She's not supposed to hear what she's. Yeah, she. I'm not supposed to hear what she's talking about. Uh, and so it's just it's for the first time in our entire relationship, we're actually we have a lot to talk about, but we have to be a little bit cautious because I love it. You know, we're we're with competing VC funds, uh, and it, it's really quite funny because, um, you know, we still collaborate on a lot of things. Uh, we still um, we're both very um, passionate about getting more women in tech and getting more women in VC. Yep. Um, we're very passionate about ecosystem development. You know, we're both increasingly passionate about sustainability and ESG. And so, you know, the, the fact that between the two of us, 
you know, we're now looking at, <laughs> she's going to hate me for saying this, but we're probably looking at a combined 45, 50 years of work experience between the two of us, right. uh, both of us with VCs, kind of throwing our weight behind the causes that are important to us. So so for me, it's like, you know, I think when people call us, you know, a power couple, we kind of get all bashful about it. Like, oh, yeah. okay, whatever. But but I, I'll say that if it gives us the the, the sort of, influence and gravitas and leverage to say, okay, if we are that power couple, let's talk to you about diversity right. in the ecosystem. Let's make a difference. Let's talk right. to you about, yeah, let, let's make a difference with that. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I would say up until a couple years ago, it, it, you know, I was a bit dismissive right. of that characterization. Now it's like, now that I have these things that I super believe in, you know, I think my wife and I are both leaning into that. We're saying, okay, power couple, great. Yes. Let's talk about women in tech. Let's talk about, you know, education and, you know, clean agriculture and, you know, decarbonization and all the things that are kind of our personal passion. So, um, yeah, you know, it's a whimsical, but I think with a purpose. I understand. Paul, this has been an incredible conversation and I don't think this is the end of it, to be fair. I'm really hoping that. Oh, I'm just getting started. Yeah. No, I'm I'm really hoping that not only will you come back. Yeah, that not only will you come back, but that we can get other people in the ecosystem that you know to come on this show and to talk about the things that are really important to them in a way that's substantive. I mean, think about it. We've been at this for, I don't know, an hour and some minutes, right? And I think having these conversations is really important. I, I think it's it's tip of the iceberg. Um, you know, but, you know, it's, it's interesting because, again, if we look at the Thailand ecosystem uh, where we are and, and we look at some of the players involved, you know, like I said, you know, I, I got recruited into, you know, Gobi through um, Shannon, but, you know, she was probably one of the first people that I reached out to when I came back to this ecosystem. Right. Um, and again, she she made that transition from e-commerce, like most of the early ecosystem players were, yeah. into VC. Um, she was, she's been one of the driving forces at Gobi and making sure that we invest in more female founders. Good for her. So, uh, and a lot of it's just because she's a female founder herself, but she was doing kind of the S part of ESG by default. Right. But now in a more formal, structured way. And then if I look at probably the other key person that I knew when I first came back to the ecosystem, uh, Sam Promutin from Bangkok Venture Club. Yep. Uh, he, he's he's an old friend of mine. We went we went to school together. He he went from very traditional like e commerce and uh, you know, he was doing stuff early on with Groupon and then, you know, he was doing style hunt. Uh, and then he kind of got into the angel side, uh, and now he's he's the head of the Sustainability and Entrepreneurship Center at Sasa. Awesome. So you know you have some of um, I'd hate to say the term gray hairs, but a couple of us veterans and gray hairs that have kind of are looking at where our purpose in life need to be, and we're kind of all kind of converging in the same areas, and that's around sustainability and impacting ESG. And yeah. so you know I, I think over time more and more people are going to realize that this is just super super important yeah i think that's the perfect way to end thank you so much for doing this today i really appreciate it no it was fun i could uh, i could talk about this stuff forever <laughs>